We talk about love in a way that's very unrealistic. If you're in love, you're not going to want to have sex with anyone else but that one person. That's not true. We need to acknowledge that truth so that people don't have to spend 40 years of marriage lying to and policing each other. Those are the words of a writer called Dan Savage. I don't need to tell you, I hope, that he's not a Christian. And no doubt he thinks he is being very modern in the views that he's expressing. But he's not. The ancient Babylonians believed marriage commitments were pretty meaningless. In that culture, men could divorce their wives at will. And in Jesus' day, the predominant Jewish view was that a man could divorce his wife for something so minor as preparing a bad meal. There's nothing modern about our culture's modern approach to relationships. Dan Savage thinks strong marriage commitments are just unreasonable. And so did plenty of ancient cultures. I say that as an introduction to looking again at Mark's gospel. Last week, Steve dealt with the end of Mark chapter 9. And in that passage, Jesus began calling his followers to radical discipleship. They were called to a life that went against the tide of their society. That call to radical discipleship continues in the passage we're going to look at this evening. And of all the areas where following Jesus takes us against the grain of our society, marriage is one of the major areas. So turn with me to Mark chapter 10. And in the church Bible, that's page 1014, and in the large print, 1573. And we'll read the first 12 verses of this chapter. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man... She commits adultery. 
This is God's word. Verse 2 gives us some important information about the context of Jesus' words here. This is a situation where he's being tested. And the ones doing the testing are the usual suspects, the Pharisees. So Jesus is responding to a question. And this situation is somewhat similar to the beginning of chapter 7. There, the Pharisees asked Jesus what he thought of the traditions of the elders about eating food with unwashed hands. Here, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and say, let's talk about divorce. Divorce was a major point of debate among the Pharisees. As far as we know, they all agreed divorce was allowed. But they disagreed about the circumstances in which it was allowed. One school of thought said only for sexual immorality. And another school of thought said it's allowed for any instance where a wife does something that displeases her husband. By the way, it didn't work the other way around. It was the husband's privilege to divorce not the wives. And apparently, it was the second, more liberal view which was most popular in Jesus' day. And as I said at the start, it allowed a man to divorce his wife for for preparing a bad meal. The Jewish historian Josephus said, I divorced my wife, not liking her behavior. Rabbi Akiba permitted a man to divorce his wife if he found another fairer than she. It's important for us to realize that is the cultural climate in which Jesus gets asked about divorce. It was a society just as free and easy about divorce as our society is, maybe even more so. And in terms of Mark's gospel, there's another factor to remember. Back in chapter 6, Mark told us John the Baptist literally lost his head when he took a strong stand on the issue of divorce. So in Jesus' context, this is a hot topic. He lives in a cultural climate where your views on marriage and divorce can get you in trouble, especially if they're radical views. And we'll see that Jesus' views are extremely radical. The Pharisees probably had a good inkling that his views were radical. That's why they're asking. They think they can get something to use against Jesus. And the question is, in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? If we read through the Gospels, we see that Jesus is a master of answering a question with a question. When people try to test him, he puts them to the test. And here, he takes charge of the interrogation in verse 3. What did Moses command you, he says? Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. So Jesus is asking, you tell me, what part of the books of Moses is relevant to this question? And in verse 4, they reply, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Notice that even as they answer, they have to admit there is no command on this. 
They can only mention a passage where they think Moses permits divorce. And the passage they have in mind is Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. So keep your finger in Mark, and we're going to take a few moments to look at that passage. You'll find it in the Pew Bible in page 201, and the large print 309, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if, after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, Or if he dies, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. You'll notice there is a command in those verses. But it's not about divorce, it's about remarriage. Moses says, if a man finds his wife displeasing, and if he gives her a certificate of divorce and sends her away, and if she marries again and her second husband dislikes her, then, here's the command, her first husband can't marry her again. These verses simply prove that divorce was going on among the Israelites. And they prove that Moses gave a command about what was to happen in the aftermath of a divorce. Why did he say the first husband couldn't marry her again? Apparently, it was to protect the woman. Her first husband had treated her badly once already. He had humiliated her. He was not to be allowed to take up authority over her again. And incidentally, the implication here is that the woman has some sort of physical problem. That seems the most likely meaning of something indecent in verse 1. So she's being passed around, not because she's behaving badly, but because of some bodily condition she has. In any case, looking at that text shows it's pretty weak grounds for saying divorce is lawful according to God's law. At most, it shows divorce was going on among God's people. But then, idol worship went on too. And that was hardly lawful. And back in Mark 10, we find that Jesus is not impressed with the Pharisees' reading of the passage. He says to them in verse 5, It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. In other words, the fact that Moses even had to address this issue shows Israel was rebelling against God. Jesus is saying you can't read this as support for divorce. 
It's intended to protect the victims of divorce. Remember the question Jesus had asked the Pharisees. When they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, he responded by asking, what did Moses command you? Which part of the first five books of the Old Testament is relevant to your question? They tried Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus said, no, wrong answer. Now Jesus says, let me take you to the part of Moses' writings that is relevant to your question. And Jesus quotes then from Genesis chapters 1 and 2, verse 6. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The Pharisees said, let's talk about divorce. But Jesus says, let's talk about marriage. He says, when two people are married, they become one flesh. They are no longer two separate units who can choose to go their own way. Now they are one unit. And notice in verse 9, it is God who has joined them literally yoked them together. And Jesus says what God has joined is not to be torn apart. According to Jesus, that's what Moses said. What that means is if God intends marriage to be a permanent one flesh union, then it is always against God's will for that union to be broken. Divorce always involves sin. That's Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' question. Just as a side note here, if Jesus says this is the key Bible text with regard to marriage, then marriage is between a man and a woman. And only God can truly marry people. That's what this text says. That means two people of the same sex never can be married because God doesn't marry people of the same sex. Two people of the same sex may say they're married, they may genuinely believe they're married, and the government might agree with them. But they're not truly married because God has not joined them together. Back in our passage, apparently Jesus' own disciples have some trouble with what he's just said. Verse 10, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. Now what Jesus said in verses 6 to 9 was pretty straightforward. So it seems the disciples are not asking for clarification here, they're actually protesting a little bit. But Jesus doesn't back down. Verse 11, he answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Why is remarriage adultery? Because in God's eyes, the first marriage is still in place. 
The law of the land may have allowed divorce to happen, but God didn't. So the second relationship is adultery in God's eyes. Now we all know the New Testament says more about this topic. We know Jesus himself said more on this topic. So why in this passage does he leave it at this? Simply because the Pharisees are pushing Jesus to support people's desire to break their marriage bonds. And Jesus is saying to them, you don't have that right. Ever. What God has joined together, let no man separate. The Pharisees say, let's talk about divorce. Jesus says, let's talk about marriage. It's for life. And it's not to be broken. That means if you fall out of love with your spouse, you'd better come up with a way to fall back into love. If you think you've married the wrong person, you're wrong. If you're married to someone, they are the right person. So do the work to make it work. Jesus' words were radical in his own day. It's important that we realize that. And of course, they're equally radical today. Last week, Steve showed us Jesus calling his followers to radical humility and radical obedience. Here, the call is to radical commitment to marriage. Whether we're in a marriage or thinking about getting married or supporting others who are married. Our culture says committing yourself to one person for 40 years or more is unrealistic and stifling. Jesus says, rubbish. Lifetime commitment is beautiful. It's what God intended. And the hard work involved in that commitment teaches us what real love is. It teaches us about service. It forms godly character in us. It teaches us about God's long-suffering love for his people. It teaches us about the security and peace that come from receiving love that is steady. That doesn't come and go based on our performance or our attractiveness. Jesus has made it clear. It is always against God's will for the marriage bond to be broken. Therefore, divorce always involves sin. But can we be more specific? Well, if we widen this out now and look at the whole New Testament, we can say that sometimes divorce itself is sin. That's what Jesus has said in Mark 10. Speaking, remember, to people who wanted permission to jump in and out of marriage. Sometimes divorce itself is sin, and sometimes divorce is legitimate because of sin that's gone before the divorce. Divorce always involves sin. Sometimes the divorce itself is sin. Sometimes the divorce is the result of sin. It's the result of sin when some sin has already broken the marriage bond. 
So what sins break the marriage bond? The New Testament gives us two sins that break one flesh. Those sins are adultery and abandonment. Those two sins separate what God has joined together. And in the aftermath of that broken bond, divorce is not sin. It's the result of sin. In those situations, the marriage is already over in God's eyes. So let's look at each of these sins that break the marriage bond. First, adultery. The Old Testament law commanded that adulterers be stoned to death. We're not going to look at those passages, but if you want to write down the references, there are Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. So, in Old Testament times, if your spouse committed adultery, you became a widow or a widower. Clearly, in that situation, you could marry again. We saw a couple of weeks ago in Romans 7, If your spouse dies, you are no longer bound to them. You're free to marry someone else. Now, it seems the death sentence for adultery was not being carried out among the Jews in New Testament times. But God's law had still set out the principle. Maybe the human authorities didn't execute adulterers anymore, but according to God's law, they were dead. Their spouse could marry again. That's the background to Jesus' words in Matthew 19, verse 9. There it is on the screen. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. I think we're to take that as saying when sexual immorality takes place, the innocent spouse can divorce and remarry. Because according to God's law, their adulterous spouse is already dead. They would be if the law was carried out. Jesus does not say the innocent spouse must divorce, but they have the right to. And where that right exists, the right to remarriage also exists. A person who's legitimately divorced in God's eyes is no longer married in God's eyes. Of course, the spouse who has been sinned against can choose to work at reconciling and rebuilding that broken marriage. But it's their choice. In God's eyes, they are free to move on. By the way, when I say the innocent spouse, I mean the spouse who hasn't committed adultery. I understand that spouse is not perfect. They may be very far from perfect, but they haven't committed the sin that breaks the marriage bond. Now, in order for the innocent spouse to commit to rebuilding the marriage, they would need to see genuine repentance from the other spouse. Not just some tears not just some vague resolutions. They would need to see a clear commitment to accountability and complete transparency moving forward. 
Now, when we think about adultery, we need to consider something else Jesus said about it. This time in Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So then, do lustful glances at another woman break the marriage bond? Are they legitimate grounds for divorce? That is a very, very tricky question. The reason it's so tricky is that physical adultery is easy to pin down. You've either done it or you haven't. But adultery of the heart is much harder to pin down. I think if we took a poll here, probably all of us would agree that if a man has a momentary lustful thought in the street and confesses it to his wife, his wife probably doesn't have firm grounds to divorce him. On the other hand, if a man or woman is spending hours every day looking at pornography and as a consequence of that is withholding sex from his own wife, that probably is grounds for divorce, according to Matthew 5. The trouble is, of course, what do we make of all the cases in between those two extremes? That's where it's so hard. My own thinking on this is that each situation has to be looked at separately. And when that happens, there would be situations where if the innocent spouse said they wanted a divorce, then as church leaders we would probably say, because of your spouse's significant pornography addiction, we think biblically, taking Jesus' words in Matthew 5 seriously, you have the right to divorce on the grounds that your spouse has committed adultery. We would probably say to that man or woman, if you choose to pursue divorce, we would support you as church leaders. So, men, pornography can end your marriage. Don't mess around with pornography and think the church leaders will tell your wife that she's stuck with you. Biblically, she may not be stuck with you. What you might think is an acceptable level of pornography may turn out to be unacceptable. Don't play around with it. Put it to death. And at the same time, as I said before, where there is genuine repentance, and I emphasize the word genuine again, then as church leaders we would encourage the innocent spouse to work for reconciliation. We would encourage that whether the adultery was cyber sex or physical sex. As church leaders we could not insist on reconciliation. We can't insist on it. The one flesh union has been broken by sin. But we would encourage and support reconciliation. 
Now let's look at the second sin that breaks the marriage bond. Abandonment. Turn with me this time to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In the church Bible, it's page 1148. A large print, 1776. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now in this chapter, this quite long chapter, Paul has lots to say about engagement and marriage and singleness. And it would be useful to look at the whole chapter. But tonight we're going to break into the middle of the chapter and read verses 10 down to verse 16. So 1 Corinthians 7 verses 10 to 16. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say this, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? The two comments in brackets there, first of all, not I but the Lord, and then I, not the Lord, those comments do not mean that some of this passage is authoritative and some of it isn't. Paul is just indicating that Jesus has already said some of what he's saying here. And some of what's here is the stuff that Jesus didn't say. But it's all from God. Verses 10 and 11 repeat what we've just seen in Mark. Don't divorce. In verse 10, that's what the word separate means. And Paul says, if you have sinned already by divorcing, don't commit the additional sin of remarrying, because that would be adultery. Again, this is Mark 10. And like Mark 10, Paul is talking about divorces where the marriage has not already been broken by adultery. If your marriage hasn't been broken by adultery, then your divorce is sin if you're a Christian and you go ahead with it. And verse 11 are addressed to marriages where both spouses are Christians. How do we know that? Because in verse 12, Paul says, to the rest, I say this. And then he speaks to situations where only one spouse is a believer. In the early church, that would have come about by two unbelievers getting married and then one of them becoming a Christian. It was understood that Christians did not go out and marry non-Christians. 
And Paul says, if you are in that situation, if you're the spouse who's become a Christian, and if your non-believing husband or wife will stay with you, then you must stay with them. He says your presence can have a powerful influence on the family. I think that's the sense of sanctified in verse 14. In some sense, the presence of the believer sets the family apart for God. But, Paul says in verse 15, if the unbeliever chooses to leave the marriage, the believer is not bound. What does that mean? There are really two options. It could mean not bound to keep the marriage together. But that doesn't really make much sense. If the unbeliever has gone, what is the believer supposed to do? Is the believer supposed to try and find the unbeliever and move in with them again? Is the believer supposed to try and drag the unbeliever back home? There is a second possible meaning which I think is much more likely. The believer is no longer bound in marriage to the one who has abandoned them. The unbeliever's sin of abandonment has broken the one flesh union. The believer is now unbound from their unbelieving spouse. They are free to remarry. And I think that understanding is confirmed Later in the chapter, in verse 39, if you look down to verse 39, Paul says, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In verse 39, when a spouse dies, the living spouse is no longer bound to them. That means they're free to remarry, Paul says, so long as their new spouse is in the Lord, a Christian. That is the same meaning of the word bind that we saw in Romans 7. And I think it also applies in verse 15. In God's eyes, death breaks the marriage bond, adultery also breaks it, and abandonment breaks it. And when that bond has been broken, remarriage is permitted. The Bible gives us a basic framework for figuring out the rights and wrongs of marriage and divorce. But the Bible does not deal with every possible scenario. How could it? And so as Christians, we have to work hard to apply the Bible's framework to each individual situation. For example, what about an unbelieving spouse who in every practical sense has abandoned the marriage, except that they still live in the same house with their believing husband or wife? Does that count as abandonment or not? I think that question takes us into similar territory to the adultery question. Can pornography as adultery be grounds for divorce? We said the answer was sometimes. 
And I think we have to say the same thing here. If your unbelieving spouse won't sleep with you or talk to you or spend time with you, but for some reason they stay under the same roof as you, that seems to qualify as being unwilling to live with you as a husband or wife. What about physical abuse? The Bible doesn't give clear direction on that. My own advice would be to get out of the situation. And if in time the abusive spouse commits adultery, then you are free to remarry. If they never do commit adultery, which is highly unlikely, but if they never do, then it seems that biblically you would have to stay single. This is such a big subject, we could spend weeks looking at lots of possible situations. And it's important to realize that in the years ahead, there will no doubt be plenty of difficult situations that come up connected to this fellowship. In the UK, the average marriage lasts 11.6 years. And that's in the declining instances where marriage actually happens. New believers in the years ahead are going to join the fellowship with very complicated backgrounds. We will have to pray hard and try to figure out what to do in each individual case. But tonight we've looked at the biblical framework. Marriage is for life. There can never be divorce without sin. Either the divorce itself is sin, because the couple are still joined in God's eyes, or the sin has happened before the divorce, in the form of adultery or abandonment. In that case, divorce simply confirms the break that's already happened in God's eyes. So let's go home this evening very clear about how seriously God takes marriage. Let's go with new determination to give care and attention to our own marriages. And let's pray and pray for the Christian marriages we know. Let's get used to the fact that being a disciple of Jesus Christ involves a radically countercultural lifestyle. Our culture views marriage as a pretty fragile commitment. But Jesus calls us to a radical commitment to marriage, including radical faithfulness with our eyes and our hearts. So we're going to close by asking for God's strength, not just for ourselves as individuals, but also for one another. We're going to sing together, Lord of the Church.